You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped, first broadcast on the 20th of September 2015 on Monocle 24. Asia Pack Unwrapped, in association with ANZ. From our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong and Singapore, and right here at Midori House in London, this is Asia Pack Unwrapped, your unmissable weekly briefing from the world's most dynamic region. Coming up in the program, it's been another crazy week in the Australian capital, so what exactly is going on in the nation's political circus? There was a grave concern across the board, I think, from lots of different political spectrums, because we don't want this to become the norm. It's very scary if every time you take a dip in the polls as Prime Minister, you've got to be checking your back. Then we're in Hong Kong, where high-class tailoring is no less expected than one might find in the traditional high streets of London. We have over 160 years of heritage and experience crafting these beautiful suits and tailoring for our clients. And Bespoke is really at the heart of what we do. It's super exciting to be able to bring that to Asia for the first time. And later in the show... They've got these premium products on sale at that exhibition. You can buy a 275,000 yen nightlight, which I've got my eye on. Which is, which is a replica of the uh, Death Star. The Death Star, exactly. <laughs> not so long ago, in a galaxy not so far away, we'll look at Japan's love affair with Star Wars. That's all to come on Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ, starting now. I'm Ben Ryland. Lots to come on today's show, as always. First up, though, Australia, we need to talk. This week saw yet another Prime Minister submit his resignation after being ousted by his own colleagues. Tony Abbott faxed his resignation to the Queen's representative. Yes, that's right, faxed. Making way for new leader Malcolm Turnbull. During the ABC's coverage, one journalist remarked that the country must be garnering some sort of international reputation for this sort of thing. He wasn't wrong. The reaction vibrated across the world's media, attracting the kind of weird and wacky coverage usually reserved for political situations rather more circus-like than Australia might be used to. Well, another Australian who witnessed this latest house of cards collapsing in Canberra was comedian, radio and TV host Tom Ballard. Tom, welcome to the show. Tell me, what's going on with Australian politics? It's a weird time this week with Malcolm Turnbull replacing Tony Abbott as the Prime Minister for the people of the left, such as myself, bleeding heart lefty pinkos, because it's a good thing that Tony Abbott is gone. It is generally a good thing that Malcolm Turnbull, to me, a more progressive, more reasonable man, is the leader of the country. But when there were rumblings at the start of the year that this leadership spill might have happened again and Tony Abbott might be usurped, there was a grave concern across the board, I think, from lots of different political spectrums, because we don't want this to become the norm. It's very scary. If if every time you take a dip in the polls as Prime Minister, you've got to be checking your back, because no one can govern like that. It means that the election cycle will be ever constant, will be 24-7, and any little slip-up you make may result in, in you losing your job and um, being replaced by someone who may not differ from you very much in policy, but who will just simply be more marketable and more you know, electable. So it, it obviously all dates back to 2010 when Julia Gillard, you know, usurped Kevin Rudd in a move that it still, I think, yeah, shocks everybody when we think about it, how quickly it happened, how it sort of came out of nowhere, how it was never really sold or explained in any decent way through any kind of policy position. 
and the ridiculousness of then um, Kevin Rudd leaking against Julia Gillard, then returning to the prime ministership, and the you know the chaos that that ensued and the lack. You know, I mean, already people are pretty cynical about politics, but once you see this display, it's pretty easy to, to check out. So the cynicism has certainly increased since the Rudd and, and Gillard years, and I think that's one of the the funny differences with this one though is that uh, even as it was happening, I was watching the ABC, and it seemed as though no one really had that expectation that Malcolm Turnbull was going to have to make that case as to why Tony Abbott was ousted from his position. It kind it was, of it was a minor detail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a minor detail. And again, I mean, it's so so disheartening to me watching it because he says, well, you know, Tony Abbott hasn't really taken us in the right economic direction. And you're sort of going, no, <laughs> Malcolm, there is a laundry list of reasons why this man should not be prime minister. He <laughs> knighted Prince Philip for no good reason. <laughs> He's profoundly uh, inhumane and cruel to asylum seekers who come to our shores seeking help. His catch cry of stopping the boats is one of the most insidious and sinister policies that have, you know, this dumbing down of public debate and a complete ignorance and dismissal of the plight of, of these people and our responsibility as a first world country to help our people who, are, who need our help. His suspicion of climate change, his lack of action anywhere there. I mean, there are so many reasons why, why Tony Abbott was not a good news. And so it was frustrating for Malcolm to sort of say, hey, no, he's done a good job, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to take the baton from here and we'll try and see what can happen. Because... Um, Malcolm Turnbull, always the diplomat. Well, But the funny thing is, I have to look at this fashion that you kind of uh, touched upon there with leaders of Australia being continuously outed, it seems, uh, over and over again. It almost seems as though we're reaching some sort of new phase in politics where this will become the norm. But Australia is quite the anomaly there because if we look at our system of government, it's not too dissimilar to the way it works here in the UK. Mm. I mean, yes, Margaret Thatcher was even ousted from... Uh, her position by her own party at, at one point in time. But that was after a long time, and it certainly doesn't happen very often here. No, I mean, it did, you know, certainly did happen in uh, the 90s with the or late 80s, early 90s with the Keating Hawke tussle. There was a huge amount of tension built up over a long time about whether he would be the, um, the natural successor to John Howard as the leader of the party once John Howard stepped down. And so leadership tension is sort of, I guess, a constant factor of, of politics, but it, it just seems like. You know, over the past couple of years in Australia, you know, Malcolm Turnbull now our fifth prime minister in five years, the machinations of the party system and all this backrooming, this faceless men idea, this idea that there's all these men pulling numbers that we never actually really know anything about and then get rewarded with sort of Senate seats once it all comes out in the wash. I think that's sort of come out a lot more publicly and people get more an understanding that politicians don't just sit in a room and talk about the things they like in a party. There's factions and there are deals made and grudges are held for decades, it seems. I mean, you know, politics is made up of human beings and people. So for me, the despair is that the policies don't seem to be at the forefront of that discussion. You know, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't say, I believe this, Tony Abbott believes this, and this is why we're different. Julie Gillard didn't really make the case as to what, you know, what she believes in differently, markedly differently, so differently that the Prime Minister had to be changed uh, compared to Kevin Rudd. And now we see people, you know, jettisoning the very things that make him appealing in order to become those leaders. You know, uh, this talk of, you know, Malcolm Turnbull is basically giving up the fight on marriage equality and on climate change action, really, in order to get the support, to get the numbers so he can take over as Prime Minister. So this is interesting. We are reaching some sort of new phase when it comes to politics, and it does seem as though the personality politics is taking over. Polling is really becoming the Bible for becoming a leader of the country. If you're popular in the polls, you will get the job. As soon as you're not popular anymore, you'll lose the job. What is that going to mean for the political system going forward? Are we Will this mean that uh, debate will become more, uh, it will have to be more straight to the point? You'll have to convince people straight away, not really 
necessarily run with something that is unpopular in the interim, but is the best thing to do in the long term. I mean, that has really been the cornerstone of being a good leader in the past, hasn't it? Well, I think it's still about conviction politics. So, look, for all my criticisms of Tony Abbott, he did seem to believe what he said. I think what he believed and said was awful, but I do respect that. Jeremy Corbyn stands out as someone uh, in the UK, now the newly elected Labour Party. You know, all this talk about him being unelectable is nonsense, I think. I think people want someone who has put in decades of service to the public, who knows what he's talking about, who really believes what he's talking about, and who's up for a debate. So I, I hope that's still the direction. I hope that the political class as a whole will look at this stuff and say, people just want to know what you really think, and they want good policies, they want good arguments, and they want a passion. You know, They want a commitment to bettering the nation's interest rather than um, cynical manoeuvring through the political moves. I don't know if that will happen, but that's my dream. Tom Ballard, thanks very much for joining us. And you can catch Tom performing at the Sydney Opera House in October. And he's got a podcast happening too, titled Like I'm a Six-Year-Old. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Despite the long tradition of bespoke tailoring in Hong Kong and Tokyo, people with high sartorial expectations still crave that authentic touch they've come to expect from brands with a long history of craftsmanship. Savile Row has thus become a name and a mecca for that exclusive tradition. But travelling back and forth between London isn't entirely realistic for everyone. For that reason, an increasing number of houses are taking to the skies themselves, bringing that high-class tradition to new doorsteps. Monocle's Kurt Lin slipped into his finest suit and sat down for a chat with marketing manager Shuo Yu and senior cutter Robert Bailey at Huntsman, a name that's enjoying skyrocketing popularity after the movie Kingsman, just ahead of their first trunk show across Asia. We are one of the bespoke tailors on London's famous Savile Row. Um, So we're right in the middle, we're number 11, and we have over 160 years of heritage and experience crafting these beautiful suits and tailoring for our clients. And, you know, bespoke is really at the heart of what we do, and it's super exciting to be able to bring that to Asia for the first time. How did this uh, trunk show in Asia come about, and uh, why Asia, and how do you guys organise it? Yeah, so we've always done trunk shows, but they've mainly been in the US. And kind of as the Asian markets have developed, we see we have more Asian clients and thought, why not kind of bring the trunk show to Asia? So it's A, it's easier for our clients, they can have their fittings in the market and also just to expand the company into these markets. What are the differences between them in terms of the clientele's expectation and also their understanding of uh, bespoke tailoring? It does vary between clients. I think markets like Hong Kong and Tokyo are a lot more established and they know bespoke a lot more than, say, the more Chinese markets like in Shanghai and Beijing. We have a lot of newer clients who have kind of come into the store on Savile Row and ordered a suit to be fitted out in Asia. I think there's just less of an understanding as to what bespoke is and that heritage. So there's more of an education piece in China, but across the other markets, it is more well-established. So what did they expect you for the service? Like, uh, why did they choose Huntsman? 
because <laughs> we're the best at what we do. I know we have, I think it's because of our heritage. We, you know, we have, we've been in the trade for over 160 years and all of our tailors and cutters are Savile Row trained and many of them are like from several generations. So Robert Bailey, who's on, who's hosting these um, truck shows in Asia, he's fourth generation. So, you know, there's so much expertise and skill that's been passed down that you can't get anywhere else. So how do you see the trend now, more houses from Zavaro expanding to different places? Well, in the last 50 or 60 years, the whole trade has generally had to go to the customer because the customer can't always get to the shop. So uh, for years now, we've been going to United States of America doing the trunk shows like we are now doing in Asia. It generally uh, increases the uh, capacity for someone to order a bespoke suit from abroad who can't always get to London so now London comes to uh, wherever the customer is it's kind of been like that for a long time now and it works very well you get the whole um, experience of a Savile Row tailor on your own doorstep What are the challenges to preserve this specific kind of uh, craftsmanship? Well, there's a lot of competition nowadays from the made-to-measure market and um, that is more of a a factory-made garment made from a block whereas ours is uh, totally made for one individual person. We take uh, over 35 measures from each customer, and that is applied to his or her very own pattern. It gets updated after every time we meet. After each fitting, the pattern will be altered as to whatever the situation was on the last meet. That way, the customer can order over the phone, choose the cloth over the phone. We can then meet up for the fitting, If someone's very pushed for meeting up, we can be guaranteed a pretty close fit when we do actually meet. And they can have a, a, be assured they're going to get the same quality of garment they had the last time, made totally by hand for that one person. What's the future plan? So the future plan is to come to Asia four times a year. So hopefully that means like a quicker turnaround of the suits that our clients order so they don't have to come to London to have their suits like fitted for the second and third fittings. And yeah, and hopefully we just grow from strength to strength as we come and increase our clientele over in the eastern markets. That was Monocle's Kurt Lin there admiring the fine tailoring on offer at Huntsman in Hong Kong. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. Still to come, we'll examine how Melbourne is fine-tuning its international brand. But up next, just how deep does Japan's love affair with Star Wars run? There's so much more to Hong Kong than its sea of skyscrapers. And Monocle's new travel guide is here to help you discover a different and captivating side to this complex and ever-changing city. This city isn't one that will let go of its past easily. Hong Kong is marked by an eclectic confluence of archaic and futuristic, deliberate and accidental, all of which can make exploring the city a dizzying experience. From food to retail, art to architecture, Monocle Films takes you on a journey through the city to celebrate the publication of the Monocle Travel Guide to Hong Kong, premiering now in the film section of monocle.com. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The anticipation across the world for the new Star Wars film needs no explanation. The film franchise instills a particular kind of devotion amongst its fans, often venturing into the extreme. That's perhaps what's happening in Japan right now. 
The airline ANA recently unveiled a Boeing Dreamliner 7879 with livery resembling R2-D2. And in the lead-up to the release of the new chapter, The Force Awakens, convenience store Behemoth 7-Eleven has scored the exclusive rights to sell tickets via its in-store machines. We sent Monocle's Asia editor-at-large Kenji Hall and Tokyo bureau chief Fiona Wilson to explore the nation's intergalactic obsession. Seven and I Holdings. Fiona and I are sitting here. We're just a few minutes away from going to buy ourselves tickets to the new Star Wars movie, Star Wars The Force Awakens which will be released in Japan on December 18th. We're going to take advantage of the 1,400 yen price of the advance tickets at 7-Eleven, which has concluded an exclusive distribution deal with Walt Disney. The Star Wars craze has already begun. Yeah, I mean, you can't underestimate it here already. I mean, we're still a few months away from the uh, the opening date, but actually it's been going on for months, ramping up the publicity for this film. There was an exhibition in Rapongi Hills earlier in the summer, which had queues wrapped around the building, you know, had amazing kind of conceptual art pieces of memorabilia, and people were already queuing up for that. And then already now at the moment, we're starting to see the uh, tie-ups coming thick and fast. And um, I think there's also a big exhibition that's touring uh, Sutaya bookshops. And um, we were just looking at the absolutely amazing uh, product. They've got these premium products on sale at that exhibition. You can buy, uh, you know... A 275,000 uh, yen nightlight, which I've got my eye on. Anything which is, which is a, a replica of the uh, Death Star. The Death Star, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and there's a speaker that is also a snow globe with Darth Vader inside. And there's another version with uh, several stormtroopers. Yeah, I think I might pass on the uh, special Star Wars themed Crocs, but uh, <laughs> each to their own. There's also an ANA deal. Uh, ANA has cut a deal with Lucasfilms and has unveiled three jets. There's the R2-D2 ANA jet. There's the... BB-8, the new droid. Very excited about that one. The new droid jet. And then there's there's one that's just a general Star Wars-themed jet. JTB, which is the travel agency, has already begun offering packages to places like Singapore, where you know they're promising that you can actually fly on one of these jets. I mean, don't even start on the fan events. I can already see people dressing up. The mind boggles what will actually be happening on December the 18th. There's also a group that calls itself Suibun Nojo Kumiai Sokai. This is a play on what the hometown of Luke Skywalker, Tatooine. And what they do is they get together and they, they dress up and they also talk about how to make your own lightsaber. lightsaber. Uh how to make the light come out properly and how to make it so that it recreates the sound of a lightsaber. The all-important sound. That is the critical <laughs> part. Don't miss that. No, I, th- I think you can really get into the nether reaches of some quite strange uh, subcultures with Star Wars in Japan. I have to say that's the, that's the least painful movie ticket buying experience ever. I'm a bit gutted that you don't get the, the newspaper right here and now. <laughs> Do I have to wait till December the 18th? You have to wait in a very long line for that one. Kenji Hall and Fiona Wilson there at Monocle's Tokyo Bureau, wandering the mysterious galaxies behind Japan's Star Wars obsession. As a discerning tourist in Australia in search of a special something to bring home, it can be rather difficult wading through the bins of fluffy clip-on koalas and snow globes of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. 
While Sydney's iconic beauty has become a sort of default symbol of the nation's tourism, Melbourne has taken a little longer to find a way of promoting itself as a destination worthy of souvenirs. Well, the mission behind Melbournealia is to change all of that. The retail destination at the top of the city's Burke Street is a hub for all things made in Melbourne by crafty creatives, from knitwear and jewellery to crayons and cushions. Stephen A. Russell popped in for a chat with Jenny Brown, owner of Melbournealia, to discuss how the city's brand is emerging as a premium contrast to its larger rival. Melbournealia is really more about telling stories and less about retail, even though we obviously have a retail store, which is on Burke Street. We sell things, we take money, we wrap things up, we put them in bags, etc. But really, what we like to say that we do is tell stories about Melbourne and tell stories about the great places and the great people and stories behind the products that we sell. So we have a range of different products from nail polish to crayons to coffee cups to some leather goods and jewellery, all sorts of things, most of which are souvenir-based products, but all of which have a story behind them about the people that produce them and about Melbourne as well. So it's all intertwined, I suppose. And the idea for Melbourne Elliot came up a few years ago in 2011. I'd been working in retail for many years, in fact, most of my adult life, um, when I think back on it. And I had worked for a number of different uh, smaller boutiques and a craft organisation. So I was very close to small batch manufacturers, designers, artists, people who were sort of, you know, DIY, doing things themselves, one or two person operations, small family companies, that sort of thing. So I had a quite a background and quite a few, a good understanding of that industry. And uh, in 2011, I was working for a couple of furniture designers who had asked me to come into their retail store and sort of create more of a, a retail buzz around their furniture. And I found that I was having the same conversation with a couple of different suppliers about Melbourne-made products and about Melbourne stories. So the four of us, so there were two boys who ran a publishing company called Arcade Publications and another fellow, Alistair McKinnon, who worked for a knitwear company. We were chatting independently about Melbourne-made products and the idea of having a store that was, or a space or a concept that was devoted particularly to Melbourne made and we just did it really which is sort of quite mad when I think back on it we sort of put on a show over Christmas in 2011 in not one but I think there ended up being four or five different locations around Melbourne over about a six-week period which was insane in a kind of pop-up style pop-up style yeah exactly in unusual places that we sort of got from friends and family and acquaintances and we managed to sort of build stores literally out of nothing. What, what is it about Melbourne, do you think, that makes it such a hub of creativity and all these stories and people, I guess, putting it out there? That is a really interesting question. The first thing that comes to mind, and when I look at the range of my suppliers, is I think that Melbourne is has a a very great history of diversity. The waves of immigration to Australia in general and to this city in particular have given us an incredible strength and an incredible breadth and depth of personality. And when I think about my suppliers, many of them are uh, from 
migrant families. They've been here for quite some time, and a lot of them are new to Australia, so new in the last you know, 10 or 15 years. So that's what's fabulous about Melbourne, is just that freshness, that new waves of influence and new waves of people coming to this city and creating things have created fresh things every time, which is great. I think that's one of our strengths, if not the most important one. That was Stephen A. Russell there, picking up some souvenirs with Jenny Brown at Burke Street's Melbournealia. You're listening to Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. We're nearly at the end of this week's show, but before we depart, let's revisit that diplomatic divide between Australia and Indonesia, this time with a bit of a youthful spin. While this diplomatic journey has been a bumpy ride over recent years, the neighbouring nations still maintain a healthy business relationship. The Conference of Australian and Indonesian Youth, or KUSINDI, is a bilateral event bringing together young leaders from Australia and Indonesia to discuss shaping the future of this relationship. On the eve of this week's gathering, our Singapore Bureau Chief Nolan Giles sat down with KUSINDI Managing Director Karina Akib. They discussed the role of young business leaders in the Australia-Indonesia conversation. So I work in Jakarta, and uh, when I first moved up there four years ago, having you know grown up my whole life in Sydney, I wanted to explore more about my father's Indonesian heritage. And going into Jakarta, I didn't actually realise how strong the links were between the two countries. So being in Jakarta, meeting lots of young other Australians that were there, working for business, doing startups, doing research, you know, outside of the traditional fields of government. Me and another friend, um, Bede Moore, and another friend, Chris Urbanski, decided that there is a role for young people to play in this conversation and to start shaping the relationship between the two countries. So there really was a gap there. There really was nothing being done in terms of connecting young leaders from Australia and Indonesia. I think that there were at the tertiary levels. So the universities do a really great job of kind of recruiting Indonesian students. And then um, in university, there's organisations like the Indonesian Student Association and the Australia-Indonesia Youth Association. But I think the conversation and the type of interests really start to change and are much more impactful when you're talking about young professionals that are at the age of like 28, 29, moving into their careers, you know, having a seat at the table in these serious discussions, and there was nothing specifically for them. And I think the other really unique thing about Causindi is that we're not biased towards one industry or the other. In fact, we believe that the most interesting conversations come with the diversity of our 30 delegates that are selected for the conference. So looking at it from an Australian perspective, you mentioned this need to involve these, you know, people that are coming up in the business world, whether they be entrepreneurs, whether they be working in the financial sector. What's the perception like back in Australia of Indonesia as a country to do business in? I think it's quite a black box, you could say. I think that forums like this really open up people's eyes to those opportunities. And being a young Australian that is doing business in Indonesia, there are certain nuances to the market. And I think by building personal relationships with people that you can trust, I think that's where the barrier comes down for business. If you know someone in market that's an expert in the field that you're looking at, you can really go for them for information that you really can't find on the internet or you can't find if you're talking to a trade department. Moving aside from your event, how negative have the trade barriers that are, that are sort of going up in Indonesia at the moment been on Australian businesses? I mean, do you see that as a major issue going forward or is this just something temporary? 
I think this sentiment around foreign workers in general is a little bit um, difficult at the moment because of the uncertainty, even for people that have been living in Indonesia for a while and working there. But, you know, as part of my job, you know, outside of Cause India in the business and the digital world, I always speak to businesses that can see beyond that and see the 250 million people, see the 6% growth rate and see that as an opportunity and a market for their product. So they're willing to kind of push beyond that negative sentiment that is does exist at the moment. That was our Singapore Bureau Chief Nolan Giles there in conversation with Karina Akib. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Asia Pack Unwrapped in association with ANZ. The show was produced by our studios in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and by me, Ben Rylan, here at Midori House in London. Nina Norik was our editor, and Kurt Lin was our researcher. We are, of course, back at the same time next week. That's 7 a.m. Monday in Sydney, 9 a.m. in Wellington, and 2200 hours on Sunday here in London. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com or tune in via iTunes, SoundCloud or the Monocle app. This is Asia Pack Unwrapped on Monocle 24 in association with ANZ. Until next time, I'm Ben Rylan. Enjoy your week. Listener.